Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app, and now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, remotely still, by co-host Joe Wolfond. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, uh, we had one minute left in morning when we were recording this, so good afternoon now, Wolfond. You want to talk some all-stars or what? That's what we're here to do today. We are going to pick our all-star teams. That sounds great. Yeah, I mean, we're... <laughs> When, what are we like three three weeks away from the game itself? Something we are like about four weeks away, 30 days away four. still from the game itself, 20 days uh. from the trade deadline, but we are six days away when we're recording this from the January 27th date that starters will be announced, 13 days away from the February 7th date when the reserves will be announced. We're going to beat the NBA to the punch today and just choose our entire all-star teams and the nba should ju- then just listen to us because we're smarter than the people that sorry actually that's mean because a lot of the people listening to this are voting as fans us and our pound the rock listenership are smarter than the media the rest of the media and the coaches and and everyone else that's that's voting on these games so we're gonna beat the nba yeah, to the well, punch, and then everyone should listen i to think us. Uh, i think doing it before the starters announced also makes sense because once they are then we're sort of boxed into just picking the reserves from that point. So I think for us to be able to do it and pick who we think should be the starters before those starters actually get chosen, uh, I think is a more fun way to do it. So we'll do the untainted version without Andrew Wiggins in uh, the starting lineup for the, I was going to say for the Western conference, but that's obviously not how it works anymore. Right. For, for team Steph or whoever, It's going to be the Team Steph and Team LeBron again. And yeah, don't even get me started on that that whole tangent again. I, You know, them tinkering with the, the teams, whatever. But I've been saying for two years now, if you're already going to take away West versus East as the game, then it makes no sense to me that you're still blocking them off by West. I've gone on this rant two years in a row. This will be the third year. I did an unfiltered yeah. video on the Scores YouTube page last year about it. It's just... You're already going to like not East versus West. Why not then just have the best 24 players in the game rather than separating them from East and West? In years past, the West has suffered because of that. I actually think, and I think you'll agree when you were trying to make your team, I think the East players actually suffer this year. I think there are more deserving players in the East than the West this year, but we're still for some reason saying it has to be East and West despite the fact it's not East versus West. And I think I pointed this out when I went on my rant last year. This is something I actually once brought up to Adam Silver at an all-star press conference in Los Angeles in 2018. And his response to me was that the reason they have not moved away from making the selections based on conference is that because when it gets to the coaches vote for the reserves, 
the coaches feel more comfortable like only selecting players from their conference because they see them more, which again, to me, is just the most ridiculous of answers and the most ridiculous like uh, complaint from the coaches side because like we're not talking about you know MLB where you're playing like 95% of your games within your league and then interleague play makes up very small percentage. Even the NFL, for example, the like intra-conference play, I think it's like four out of your 17 games, whatever it is, or sorry, interconference play is four out of 17 games. In the NBA, like you play the teams in your division four times, but you play teams in the other conference twice. And there's some teams in your own conference that you play three times. So what playing that, like those teams one extra time is the difference between, well, I don't, I don't know those other teams enough. I only play them twice. You know, this team I play three times. Like plus mm-hmm. the way the schedule is laid out, there's a chance you might've played a team from the other conference more than you've played a team from your own conference at the time. So like, again, that argument is so stupid to me. It should be best 24 go. Anyway, <laughs> that's, If you've heard this rant before, guess what? You'll hear it again a year from now until they change it. Because I I do think it's silly. Unless they want to go back to East versus West. Right. Which I would totally welcome. Yes. And like I've I've said before on this pod, uh, I don't ever watch the All-Star game. At least not in its entirety. So it doesn't really make that much difference to me. I'm not going to watch it anyway. But I would be more likely to tune in if it was East versus West than if it was just this mishmash of like drafted teams that have like no real affiliation. Like it's not, I mean, whatever East versus West, it's not any kind of real rivalry. I don't know how many people actually care about Eastern conference or Western conference pride, but at least there's something tying those teams together, like some unifying factor as opposed to just, well, this was the team that Steph Curry decided to draft. You know, that's not in any way interesting to me. So I would totally welcome that shift, but I would also welcome the shift towards just like picking the 24 best players, regardless of conference. And um, I also remember Adam Silver turning that question that you asked him, which had nothing to do with playoff seating into correct a dialogue on the notion of like dropping conferences for playoff teams and, and playoff matchups, which he kind of like had hinted that it was something they were talking about, uh, you know, the league and the board of governors, but yeah. I don't, feel like there's been any kind of traction on that since you mentioned that to you yeah no that was that was a great uh, great moment in all-star press conference history <laughs> i do want to say before we get and i mean this will tie in because i just think there are going to be certain players who are no-brainer like consensus picks that we don't need to spend too much time talking about so because of that i just want to give a quick shout out to Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid who <laughs> On the same night, uh, was it when Wednesday night? I think when um, yes, Embiid, Embiid went for fifty points, twelve rebounds, three blocks in twenty-seven minutes against the Orlando Magic. It was a and top then, nine, top nine points per minute game in NBA history, by the way. Which I mean, yeah, I mean, I, how many of those were like <laughs> predated? Yeah, what, what what were the other eight actually? I'd I'm, have to I'm now go find. I'd have to go find the list. Uh, I think yeah. stat muse. Someone had tweeted out, but if I remember correctly, like six of the top eight were all Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> right. So I was gonna say like that would have to have have been Wilt's era. But I imagine the Kobe eighty-one point game would have to yeah. be. I would imagine in that for mix sure. As well. yeah. But anyway, that was again. You know, magic caveats apply, but still, that's an NBA team in which, <laughs> uh, in which you went for fifty 
and 12 in 27 minutes. I mean, just otherworldly stuff. And then I don't know if you could say he was outdone by Nikola Jokic a a couple hours later, but Jokic going for 49, 14, and 10 and getting that 10th assist with two seconds left in overtime uh, on just a ridiculous cross-court pass like from the right hash mark into the left corner while double teamed and falling backwards was pretty special. And I just think obviously these guys are both going to be all-star starters. I think they're playing as well as any two players in the league right now. Um, I think, you know, they're my top three in some order for MVP right now would be like those two guys and Giannis. And I just think it's cool, especially, you know, going back to last season when I think Embiid and Jokic were also the two best players in the league during the regular season. Uh, It's pretty cool to see two centers and then Giannis, I don't know how you'd categorize him, but you could call him a big as well. Like just point dominating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like just dominating the league. And, you know, for a while it seemed like at least some people were trying to render the big man extinct or, you know, talk up this small ball revolution as if uh, centers were going the way of the dinosaur. And I do think like the center position has evolved and uh, this isn't happening in the way that it's happening if Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid aren't ridiculously skilled and, you know, adding guard level skills to their center sized frames. But I just think it's cool to see um, two big men in their absolute primes lording over the league with size and strength and finesse and uh, just games that are that are totally singular to them. Yeah, I'm just really enjoying watching that, and uh, I uh, I hope everyone else is too. Yeah, well said. That that Jokic pass for the tenth assist, the game winning dime to find Aaron Gordon in the corner. Who Aaron Gordon, by the way, I think is playing the best all around basketball of his career. Hundred um, percent agree. If you remember, actually, on an episode earlier this year, before Porter even got hurt, I talked about uh, the way Aaron Gordon sometimes struggles when he's overextended offensively, when he's put in a role he's maybe not actually uh, ready for. Listen, man, I'll eat my word. He has been. He's been phenomenal for them during the stretch with all the injuries and big reason, obviously, in addition to Jokic, why they have maintained their positioning in the West despite the injuries. Uh, yeah, the Jokic thing, one of the greatest passes I've ever seen in my life, and he did it as if it was just uh, another day in the park, you know, and, and for him, it really was. But the thing I want to note with- He even said that after the game, eh? He, yeah, was I make, like, he said, I make yeah, passes I don't know like why that. everyone's freaking out. I make passes like, like That's that just a normal pass. But the thing I wanted to note with Jokic and Embiid. And this goes back to another thing that I've been talking about for a couple of years. So I don't know if you remember or not, but I, I wouldn't even call it a complaint. It was more so just a thought with the way that for all-star teams, we had gone to guards and front court. I've been saying for a couple of years, they should be doing that with the all NBA team as well, because of the way the league is, the, the way the game is moving into this kind of positionless era, the, the way positions are even designated now. And the fact they're doing it for the all-star teams, I thought it made sense to do it as well for the NBA team, the all-NBA team. And I said, I was like, look, it's it was kind of weird to me that the only position that actually got a guaranteed spot was the center spot. Because, you know, like a point guard doesn't have a guaranteed all-NBA spot. There's two guard spots. Could be two shooting guards. Like, and and I found it the same thing with front court, right? Or like power forward, small forward. They're not guaranteed. There's two forward spots, but then you got a center spot. So you end up with like three centers have to make all NBA. And I just thought it should be opened up to be more positionless. And I actually was trying to write a story on this at the time when uh, the pandemic hit, it kind of got interrupted, but I had talked to a few bigs around the league about it. And when I did, most of them were 
annoyed at the question and the way they saw it is like, oh, great. This is another way to kind con- like it's basically more center erasure. Just find another way to like take credit and, and take accolades away from centers. And one of my counters at the time, which I guess sounded very far-fetched, but now doesn't, one of my counters at the time was like, well, it doesn't have to work against you. Like the thought is, yeah, okay, there's going to be less centers in the All-NBA team now. But what about in a random year where maybe what if there's two centers that actually deserve All-NBA first team or there's more than three centers that deserve All-NBA accolades in general? That could happen in if they make it front court guards as opposed to the way it is now. And all the bigs that had problems with it kind of looked at me like annoyed. Again, thinking maybe I was being a smart ass. I don't know. This to me is actually a perfect example. Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid, if... If we were going strictly off merit, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, and Giannis Antetokounmpo would be the three deserving front court all NBA guys right now if you actually did it that way instead of, you know, saying it has to be one center, two front court. So very long way of me not necessarily saying I'm right, do it this way, but kind of saying I'm right, do it this way. Uh, but seriously, all NBA go the same way as the all-star selections, go guards and front court. I think you end up with more deserving players. You end up with a much more representative top 15 players of the year at the end of the year. And again, it doesn't have to work against centers. This is a perfect example how it could actually work for them. Rant ended. Unless you have anything to say, we can get to our all-star picks. Well, I will just say that, yes, the the Jokic pass was absolutely insane. And at the same time, like a pretty routine Jokic yeah. pass that we see a lot. Um, what kind of stood out to me about that play is just something that it's, I always love watching the Nuggets for this reason, which is just watching how everybody else on that team reacts to Nikola Jokic and specifically reacts to him when he gets double teamed and how everybody sort of sequentially knows exactly what's supposed to happen and then what's going to happen, right? Like he gets double teamed on the right wing immediately like the, the that whole side of the floor was isolated for him. There's four guys on the other side of the floor. So immediately that double team comes and Will Barton, who the double team came off of, immediately lifts uh, from the wing to the top. Then Luke Kennard, who was zoning up on the weak side wing, goes with him. As soon as Kennard goes with him, Monty Morris cuts from the wing into the middle of the floor. That draws Brandon Boston out of the corner. At the same time, Jeff Green is relocating from the right dunker spot to the left dunker spot. That draws Reggie Jackson out of the corner. And all of this is happening sort of like in real time, right? And and Jokic, it doesn't even seem like he needs to like see this happen to process it. Like he just instinctively knows what's going to happen. And like the ball is out of his hands going to Aaron Gordon in the corner while Brandon Boston is like still in the process of taking his step into the middle to check Monty Morris's cut. And I just, I find that stuff really cool to watch because it's like, Jokic knowing that everybody else on the floor is going to react to him and react to the situation and everybody else on the floor knowing exactly what they need to do in order to just open up this like tiny window for Jokic to thread that pass and knowing that he's going to thread it. And he did and he hit Gordon right in the shooting pocket uh, despite, you know, being double teamed by a seven footer and like another six foot eight guy and like basically falling backwards with three seconds on the clock. It was, uh, it was a pretty special play and, I'm very excited, obviously, for the prospect of Jamal Murray potentially getting back for that team. But I also think it's like I said in the past, okay, like Jokic in many ways is kind of like just a seven foot guard. And maybe you should think of him that way as opposed to thinking of him 
as a center, but also he still does need guards around him because it's not like you can just run like 50 pick and rolls for him a game and he's not going to just like bomb pull up jumpers or pick apart a defense just by like playing off the dribble all game but that's kind of what he's doing right now right like in that game against the Clippers they were just running pick and roll after pick and roll for him and whether he was driving to the hoop he was rejecting screens getting into the middle of the floor shooting pull up threes off the bounce he was basically just playing like a seven foot point guard and it's just uh absolutely wild that he keeps getting better like every year he gets better building on what is already an absolutely ridiculous skill set so we can just use that as sort of a long-winded way of making Nikola Jokic uh, a Western Conference all-star starter (laughs) and obviously Joel Embiid an Eastern Conference starter as well to the all-star picks where do you want to start should we start with one of the front courts since we've already kind of given uh, let's go West front court. So we've already established Jokic as one of the guys. So give me the second of three West front court starters after uh, Jokic. I think it's got to be LeBron. Like, Correct. You know, obviously the the Lakers have struggled a lot. And I do think his own apathetic defense has had something to do with that. He, he's been so unbelievable offensively. I, I think, you know, the Lakers struggles ultimately. There, there are so many factors that have gone into them. But to me, more than anything, it just comes down to, I mean, poor roster construction and also AD's absence. Like, I don't, like, yes, LeBron could be better in certain ways, but I don't know that you could really ask for a whole lot more from him than what he's given so far this season. And uh, I think he's pretty easily still an all-star starter in the West, which... Look, at in year 19 at age 37 is nothing to sneeze at, man. Like no. <laughs> it's uh it's always helpful to just take stock and recognize how insane it is what he is still doing. 100%. He has not been perfect, but especially without AD, that is a straight up bad team that is made to look even average because of his greatness for the most part. And he has easily been one of the two, not even three, one of the two best West front court players this year. Okay, I'll finish off our starting three front court then. I'm going to give it to Rudy Gobert. Statistically, aesthetically, however you want to say it, there are a lot of people that might roll their eyes at that and think like, Rudy Gobert is not what the all-star game is. Like, Save it. It's supposed to be for the 12 best players in each conference, top 24 overall, and you're out of your mind if you don't think Rudy Gobert has been that this season. The guy's easy to clown. I get that. Everyone was happy when Russ crowned him the other night, but he's been phenomenal. Uh, as great as Donovan Mitchell is, and he's having a good season, and obviously, you know, it's um, it's a much different role to be able to carry an offense than it is Gobert's role. I get that, but to me, Rudy Gobert has been their best player this season. He's been their most valuable player this season. The Jazz are obviously sliding right now. They had lost four of five without him. They've lost two of three even since he got back, but... This is still a team, even with that slide, that it would be on pace right now for about 53 wins. And he's been the most valuable player on a 53-win team. He's still right there as one of, if not the best defensive player in the world. That 53-win pace team is like 14 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the court. Controls everything out there. In a year especially where the West front court has been depleted because of some injuries, I think it makes it even more of a no-brainer. Not just that he... Um, merit-wise should be an all-star, but I think merit-wise should actually be a starter if you're talking about three front court players in the West. Yeah, I wound up going with Gobert as well, but 
I actually went back and forth, and I think it's a really interesting conversation between him and Draymond. Yeah. Because uh, you asked me, I think, just a couple weeks back whether Draymond was my defensive player of the year. And I said yes. And then I would kind of have Gobert basically as the runner up right now. And I think I would still have Draymond as the defensive player of the year, but you're really kind of splitting hairs there, I feel. You have Draymond, who is sort of the the quarterback and in many ways like the architect of the Warriors League best defense. I mean, he directs traffic and essentially orchestrates like the whole complicated dance there with everything they do, like the switching, the pre-switching, like moving in and out of zone, uh, doing all like the, the weak side disruption. Like it, it's a, a much different role to the one that Gobert plays for the jazz offense. There are a lot of good defenders on the Warriors, right? Like Gary Payton too has Gary Payton too. You're, you're, I like that you're, you're, uh, you're saying it as you would like tweet it. Right. GP too, right? Right. Uh, pretty, soon you're gonna, pretty soon you're going to be saying LOL instead of actually giving me a laugh. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I've become entirely too online. This is what COVID does to a man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, like Gary Payton II has been phenomenal. Uh, honestly, Kavon Looney, super underappreciated, but like he's been excellent. Like so positionally sound, pretty solid rim protector despite being like six foot nine and not being able to get off the ground. Um, Wiggins has been really solid for them on the wing. Like they have a lot of other good defenders who, who are able to kind of give Draymond, I feel like the support that he needs at that end of the floor. Whereas Gobert is like single-handedly propping up that jazz defense. And I don't know, it's tough to say, like, I think you could totally make a case for Gobert being the defensive player of the year. And I would have no qualms with that. So I think defensively, it's like you're splitting hairs and they're basically, it's a wash to me. Like they're on the same level. So that just led me to the question, which I think is a really fascinating one, of which of those players is better offensively? And again, I just like couldn't come up with an easy answer because in Draymond, obviously you have the ball handling, the passing. Right. I think most people would hear you say that and say, well, duh, it's obviously Draymond because of the playmaking. But I'm on the mm-hmm. same page as you are, and I'll let you finish, about the the, uh, the way that Rudy Gobert impacts um, the Jazz offense very positively. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just, once again, like they, they are good offensively in completely different ways. And I think as sort of individual scorers, they both struggle, but they both make their team's offensive systems possible. You know, Draymond, it's like the Warriors, they run their split action through him in the post. Like that's such a a staple of their offensive system. And so is like just having him operate from the top and running all like the off-ball stuff with Steph and his really canny screening for Steph and just like for for the Warriors' various other off-ball movers and shooters. Like that is so elemental to what they do as is his passing. And it's much more simple with Gobert, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's less impactful or less effective, right? Like his roll gravity and finishing ability in the pick and roll. And the Jazz are like the most prolific pick and roll team in the league and the best pick and roll team in the league and the best offense in the league by a country mile. I do think like, even though it's like maybe more of a simplistic role and doesn't involve as much ball skill, I still think I would actually give the nod to Gobert in terms of overall offensive impact, which is why 
I gave him the starting spot by just a hair. But I think it's a super interesting conversation. And uh, I didn't expect it really to be as close as it was between those two guys. But I really think Draymond has a strong case. Agreed. The, the one thing I'll say too, to your point, for anyone that thinks like what Gobert does offensively is as simple as just plug a big man in there, have him catch and finish and roll and whatever. I'd like to see what that Utah offense looks like if the entire season went by with Hassan Whiteside in that. Now, listen, Whiteside's actually been solid for that. Like, I'm not taking away from him. I'm just saying for people that think that, you know, Gobert just has this easy role in offense that you can kind of plug any big man who can catch and finish a lob or whatever. If you put Whiteside in that role instead of Gobert for an entire season, I promise you, I promise you they would not have the best offense in the league. We've now, we've, I mean, outed ourselves that we've got Draymond as one of our, I guess, front court reserves. Should we continue with the front court or do you want to, do you want to finish our starters first and then we'll come back to the reserves? Yeah. Let's round out the starters in the West. Okay. So, so um, we've got the West front court starters as Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, and Rudy Gobert by a hair over Draymond Green. And now we're going to go to the West guards. I'll throw out the first one, which I think should be obvious. It's Steph Curry. It's actually not shooting the ball as well as we're accustomed to him shooting it, but he has still been phenomenal. He has still obviously been the best player on, you know, the second best team in basketball, a team that up until like a week and a half ago was on a 65 win pace. I don't really know how much we need to discuss and or debate the merits of Steph Curry being the first guard in the West. Uh, We don't need to discuss or debate it at all. I'll I'll just say like, yeah, Steph, Steph hasn't been shooting the ball particularly well of late um his two-point percentage has actually been uh, i think a career low like it's been way lower than what we're used to seeing from him actually pretty much all season long but it's still like he still makes so much possible and it's not just about his gravity and, and how that warps defenses right like he actually has to weaponize that gravity by relentlessly moving around off of the ball not only coming off screens, but also setting screens and keeping the defense on its toes because they don't know what he's going to do. And he never stops moving. And like the sheer stamina that is required for him to do that. And in many cases, do it completely selflessly because he knows the defense is going to sell out to stop whatever, like whether it's a decoy action or whether they're actually trying to get him the ball, but like the defense is just sending two or three bodies at him. He does that knowing that he's not always going to be individually rewarded for it, but that it's going to open up a back cut for somebody else. Somebody else is going to end up wide open because of his off-ball movement. So even when he's not shooting well or scoring particularly efficiently himself, it's still driving pretty much everything for that Warriors offense. And you know, despite the fact that that Warriors offense hasn't actually been very good lately, uh, I still think Steph has obviously been... I mean, he's been one of the five best players in the league this season. I think yep. his struggles recently have maybe dropped him a kind of notch below like the top shelf MVP candidates that we mentioned off the top, but like still very clearly a Western Conference starter. And that's pretty indisputable. Okay. So then now you have to, you have to round out this, uh, this might be a tough choice. I think it's between John Morant and Luka Doncic, right? So you, you make the call. Wolf. Oh, really? Oh? Well, I mean, I, I went with Ja, but like I didn't have, I, I had Donovan Mitchell and Chris Paul ahead of Luca. Well, uh, now you're just giving away that, our entire, uh, now you're just giving away our entire, uh, but no, no, I listen. Well, I, but this is how we should talk about it, right? No, just I like know. We're talking about the process of making these picks. So I think, I think it didn't, it didn't come down to Luca versus, to, to Ja versus Luca for me. It came down to him versus uh, CP and Donovan enough. Mitchell. Fair enough. I was going to say that I, I, so I agree with you on having Ja in there. 
I also had Steph and Ja as the two starters, which right now the fans are getting right as well, which I'm happy to see. I th- What I was going to say is I think if we, if say we had done this exercise like right before the All-Star game, so essentially give it another four weeks, I think by that point, based on the way he's now starting to pick up his play, I think by that point we might be saying Luka Doncic should be one of the two guys, but that's not how it works. You're supposed to go by right now and even fans and that. So I, I agree with Ja. Um, and that's why I had him there. But that's the way I saw it was like now we were starting to see, I'd say the last like 10 to 14 days, maybe Luca looks like Luca again, playing out of his mind. And I think if he were to do that and be that guy for like the next month leading into the All-Star game, and then you asked me like the Friday going into All-Star weekend, I might say Steph and Luca are actually the two, um, you know, have been the two best West guards. But as of now, I think Ja has been that guy. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, I mean, there, if you'd asked me even a couple of weeks ago, I might have had Donovan Mitchell ahead of him. I might have had Chris Paul ahead of him. Those guys have both been superb. Mitchell has really struggled lately, and maybe this is just recency bias clouding my own judgment. But I think with with the way that Ja has played, the way that the Grizzlies have played, you know, on the strength in large part of his offensive exploits. And I've talked before about how I think, you know, the Grizzlies are very much an ensemble, like they're, it's a team effort. I don't think any one player gets, you know, the lion's share of the credit there necessarily. You just wrote about Jaron Jackson. Got that bookmark. Yeah. His, his defense has been a massive, massive part of their rise. But ultimately I think, um, you know, Ja is their best player. He is, you know, not only their offensive engine, obviously, but also their emotional compass, I feel. And they sort of follow his lead and I think have kind of, I don't know, I think that that like his spirit, his energy, like his kind of fuck you attitude has sort of- <laughs> His audacity, down his audacity. And, and kind of um, like taken hold of that entire team from night to night, Watching, like you said, the audacity with which he plays, even though I still, you know, have a lot of qualms about his defense. I just, I love watching him. And I think, you know, it's not just an aesthetic thing at this point. Like he is a legitimately tremendous, tremendous player. And in my mind, deserving of that starting spot. Yeah. And I, you know, I went on that kind of tangent a couple of weeks ago about how jaw there, there are like some special players that have that, you know, it factor, whatever you want to call it, where. Yeah, it's just like as you're watching them, something about the way they carry themselves, like they they do have some sort of special stuff that does also seem to like elevate a team and, and elevate like a team spirit and the way they carry themselves. And I do think Jaw has that, you know, how, however you want to try to explain it or quantify it or whatever. I do think he has that. And in addition to the ensemble around him, which is amazing and is very underrated. And Jaron Jackson to me is like a perfect um, kind of embodiment of that. I do think it, it's it is that like spirit of jaw that has kind of been the biggest thing pulling them up the last couple of years to the point where they now are. Okay, based on all the things we've already discussed, I'm thinking we should just finish the West and then then we'll take a break. We'll do the East after just because we've already kind of gotten into some of it. So we're yeah. talking guards right now. We would need two more guards as the reserves. We'll get to wild cards later. But so we've already said Steph and Ja are our uh, all star starting guards in the West. There are a few guys we've already named. So I'm going to go with my first reserve. I've already kind of said it. I do, I'm going to give it to Doncic. 
I think he's one of the three best guards in the Western Conference. I think he's starting to show it again. I'm acknowledging that it might be a little unfair because I'm giving him some benefit of the doubt when other guys have maybe been more consistent this season, but that's where I'm going with it. That leaves one guard on the reserve spot again. There there could be two more in the wildcard spot. So you had mentioned uh, Chris Paul and Donovan Mitchell. If you had to pick one of those guys for the reserve spot, not knowing for sure whether one could be a wildcard or not, who would it be? And I do want to point out as well that I like that you you mentioned Paul. I had a Booker, not anything against Booker. He's also been great. He will also be in the conversation when we talk wild cards. But I do still think statistics aside, uh, or base statistics aside, Chris Paul remains the most valuable son. He's also played like 200 more minutes than Booker. There's a lot of argument for him. Uh, yeah. I th- has Chris Paul played every game this season? I feel like maybe he has, or maybe he's missed one game. But Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be almost every game. But like 200 more minutes when you're kind of you know deciding between two guys whatever like that's a lot between two say star players on the same team when you're trying to decide 200 minutes in half the season is actually quite a a difference his late career availability in general oh yeah is absolutely stunning when he went through that period where he was missing he was missing games you know kind of 20 plus games almost every season in the mid part of his career the rocket's trade him for Russell Westbrook and and one of the reasons that Daryl Morey gives is that like they needed somebody who was going to be more available and I think since then Chris Paul's missed like five games or something yeah. like that it's he, he, uh you know whatever the credit the, the vegan the, like, diet or diet. The, yeah the, the, the vegan, vegan diet or, yeah. or the HGH one of those two things yeah. um <laughs> all right so we're getting sued on pound the rock term. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just Josh. And I just look, sometimes like you have a hard time explaining things and, uh, you just have to reach for some explanation or other, because, uh, honestly, what, what he's managed to do just in terms of not just his play, but his health, his availability as a small point guard in his mid thirties is astounding. And yeah, he would be my second guard. If Luca is the first one, which I don't agree with, I'd have him and Mitchell, but okay. Okay. Uh, I would put, I would put Chris Paul ahead of ahead of Mitchell uh, because I just think, I think his overall impact is greater. Obviously, you know, Mitchell as an individual scorer, like he's done incredible things for that incredible Utah offense. But if you watch the Suns play and the Suns have been on balance, the best team in the NBA this season, right? And they've got the record to show for it. They are so much Chris Paul's team in the way that they play in the offensive actions they run and the way that his passing and his mid range scoring makes it all work. Like the fact that he, he barely touches the paint, right. And he completely controls games regardless of that with the threat of that mid range jumper and the floater and the skip passing. And it's, uh, he he's just a, still a masterful offensive player that doesn't really need to get into the teeth of the defense in order to be incredibly effective. And then I think, you know, in spite of the fact that his, his on-ball defense has maybe slipped a bit, he's still like every bit the team defender that he was in his prime, man. He is still so disruptive roaming off the ball. That's been, you know, pretty much behind Golden State. Like they've been number two in defense for most of the season as well. And yeah, they have other great defensive players. Obviously, Mikhail Bridges, you know, DeAndre Ayton has been great, but Chris Paul is still a, an integral part of that excellent defense. So to see him doing that at both ends of the floor, I mean, they're just a completely different team when he is not out there. And I feel like the Jazz have had a lot of success 
Mitchell has been a huge part of that. They are pretty dependent on his creation and his scoring, but it's just not to the same level. I don't think that, uh, that the Suns are kind of um, built around Chris Paul and reliant on Chris Paul. So um, he'd be my, my second guard pick off the bench. Yeah. And for as scorching hot as Devin Booker has shot the ball in the clutch, the reason the Suns are as dominant as they are in crunch time is because of just that masterful orchestration by Chris Paul that you mentioned that he has over a game, regardless of whether he touches the paint or not. Um, Okay. So let's go back to the West front court. We've basically said Draymond is one of our three reserves again, like can't like, he's one of those guys that you cannot look at the base stats, you know, someone look at it and say, okay, eight points, eight rebounds, seven assists, steal block, but you're doing it wrong. If you're looking at Draymond and looking at his stats to determine his value, He's been a top six front court uh, and top 12 West player easily. Like you mentioned, for both of us, debatable whether he should even maybe been a starter over Gobert, but whatever, he's in there. So now I'll give, uh, I guess it's on me now to give uh, someone. Did you give? No, I yeah. gave Paul. Oh, no, you gave Paul. I gave I gave Doncic, right? You gave Paul. So I'll go. I'm going to give uh, one of the reserve spots to Carl Anthony Towns. Guy's averaging 24, roughly 24 points, nine rebounds, four dimes, an assist, and a, and a block on 52, 41, 81 shooting. For a Wolves team that is like squarely in the playoff race, this is not just empty calories. With numbers like that, with efficiency like that, on a team that is, you know, record-wise just kind of treading water, but again, in a weakened Western Conference, is very much squarely in the playoff race. There are still qualms I have when it comes to Towns, whether it's, uh, the inconsistency with which he like decides to dominate games sometimes it seems like and 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 nights he seems a little more passive. His defense I think had taken a big step forward a couple of years ago. It took a step back last year. This year I think it's been a, it come comes and goes. So we're still not talking about like a you know a flawless big man. But when you're talking about talent, skill, um, numbers, and on a team that's now much more competitive, I don't think you can look at what Towns has done this year. And again, in a in a West where the front court uh, selections have been depleted by injury and say this guy has not been one of the five or six best front court players in the conference. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to add there. He was, he was my pick here as well. I think, you know, I've had some issues with the way that he's played at times in terms of the lack of force. And I've talked yep. about him not being effective in the post. Like he's turning the ball over like crazy on post-ups, not really taking advantage when teams put forwards on him and and stick their fives on like Jared Vanderbilt or or Jaden McDaniels and that can kind of gum up the Wolves offense like those have been issues his defense has been I think better than it has in the past and I think the scheme has benefited him you know playing up to the level and and showing high on almost every pick and roll I think he's been fine at doing that I think like if you look around the league at the kind of bigs who are playing up at the level I still feel like he's been one of the less effective bigs that actually like putting pressure on the ball, preventing guards from turning the corner. But um, I think he's done an adequate job of that. And obviously the offensive exploits have been such that, you know, he's undeniably the Wolves all-star here. So I think he's, he's definitely there and he is my second front court pick as well. My pithy summary of everything you just said about Carl Anthony Towns is that that is the closest Joe Wolfon has ever sounded to Jimmy Butler. 
I can't like nitpick at Carl Towns' game at all without drawing Jimmy Butler comparisons. Like I you just can't. But I'm on board with you. You know, I, I've had those complaints about Towns the whole time. I'm just saying. But I'm not. Close... I'm not questioning like his you're not calling him a bitch. Or, I get like, it. Yeah, I'm not questioning his mentality or his toughness or anything like that. I'm just saying I would I would like to see him playing with a little bit more assertiveness and force at times, and I think that would benefit him and the Wolves greatly. Um, but whatever you say, Joey stands, Buckets. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> um, okay, so you picked that one. Uh, this I found this last front court spot in the West quite difficult because. I think, you know, if both of them had stayed healthy, it would have come down to, well, it wouldn't have even come down to, like Paul George, I think would have been a lock if he had stayed healthy. And maybe you could say AD would have as well, but like those would have been the two guys, you know, who would have been in the mix to, to occupy this last front court spot. But, and in a normal year as well, also, I mean, he didn't play this year, but also Kawhi, obviously like those three guys right there are usually walking all, you know what I mean? Walk into a season and lock them in. Like, right. Right. Um, but like AD and PG have both now missed a ton of time. I think AD is at like 20 games missed. PG is at like, I don't know, 18. Uh, PG is also now at 20 games missed. So there you go. So they've both missed about 20 games. Yeah, I mean, it's that's not necessarily enough to completely disqualify them. I would say as much flack as AD has taken this season, when healthy, he was still, to me, very much playing at an all-star level and would be very deserving of this spot. Same goes for Paul George. Even though he like his shooting really started to crater before that injury sidelined him, I just think the combination of the time they've missed, the fact that they're going to continue missing time. Like, I don't think either of them is expected back before the all-star break anyway. So it's like, they're going to still be sitting on uh, the games played totals that they're on now. And that's just going to become like a smaller and smaller portion of the season as a whole. Couple that with the fact that, you know, Davis, when he did play was pretty disappointing by his standards. And, you know, the fact that Paul George had really started to to struggle offensively, you know, he was carrying a huge load. So I don't think you necessarily blame him for that, but like he was shooting poorly and turning and turning the ball over like crazy. Um, Had nothing to do with being a tin man, everything to do with too much of a burden that I will hundred percent agree with. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, So with that in mind and knowing that, I mean, PG might not even be back all season is what we're hearing. uh, I just, it just didn't make sense to me to put either one of them in this last front court spot. So I wound up going with Brandon Ingram, who oh, okay. I think, and I mean, you know, it's not like I have been a, a particularly big Ingram believer in the past, mm-hmm. but having watched him this season, I really think it's impressive the way that he has sort of helped keep that Pelicans team afloat after that utterly disastrous start. And part of that had to do with him being out, by the way, Uh, when he's been on the floor, they've been close to net neutral in terms of their point differential. Their starting lineup actually has been like a strong positive uh, with him, JV, Devontae Graham, Josh Hart and Herb Jones. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the ridiculously poor guard play that that Pelicans team has gotten this season. 
And so it's really fallen on Ingram to do the guard stuff, to do like the off the dribble creation. And I think, you know, not only has he taken that role on, I think he's shown meaningful growth in the skill areas required to actually shoulder that load. And while his decision-making can still leave me a bit wanting at times, uh, I feel like his passing has really improved. Uh, His processing speed has really improved. He hasn't shot the ball as well as he has the last couple seasons, but I feel like, you know, the fact that that team was just looked so done, like it looked like they were headed straight into the tank. And instead, I think he kind of helped, helped, lift the floor there and keep them going to the point that, you know, they're still within shouting distance of a play-in spot. And if Zion ever makes it back, I feel like they're probably the favorite to to grab that 10th seed. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And uh, I would also say, like, I, I've been really critical of his defense in the past. I feel like he's really cleaned up a lot of the off-ball lapses that plagued him in the past. And like, he, he's been pretty solid on ball. I would grade him as like, pretty much an average, maybe even slightly above average defender this season. So all around, I think he, he was deserving of that last spot. Um, and, and, you know, even though it sort of was like process of elimination more than anything, uh, I think given the way that he has played this season and what he has meant for that Pelicans team, uh, I think it's well-deserved. Yeah, well, I mean, the way we do this uh, process is we go back and forth. And so if we're going by the official 2021-2022 Pound the Rock All-Stars, Ingram get the spot. You had that last pick. I will say, for me, it came down to Brandon Ingram and Andrew Wiggins. And this, for me, I'm actually like, no, come I know. Listen, on. No, come listen, on. listen, if you had asked, you remember if, a couple weeks ago when we had this discussion. Um, yeah. And I said, no, Andrew Wiggins is not an All-Star. He's not a top six. Friend. And, and I believe that. And I still... I still like believe that like he has not a top six Western Conference frontcourt player. All things being equal, everyone's healthy. But like, this is a very strange year. It's a very depleted Western Conference again because of the injuries. And for me, it came down. If it comes down to those two guys, do I think Brandon Ingram is on balance the better overall basketball player? Yes. Do I think? Do I think he's had a better 2021, 2022? No. And so like. Ah, I, I kind of wanted to give Wiggins the edge. I also think like Wiggins isn't as good as the people that seem to think he was like an all-star lock or, or closer to that believe. But I also think he has become a better player than a lot of, and myself included gave him credit for even early this season. Like there was even just watching him last night in a game, the Warriors lost by the way, to a Pacers team that was on the second night of a back-to-back without Sabonis, Turner, Levert, or Brogdon. They were 15 and a half point underdogs and won that game. Wiggins shot the ball terribly. But even just watching that game and like down the stretch, there were it, there were things that pop off the screen to me with Wiggins now where it's like he is such a much more polished and smarter player. I don't know if it's just like being around Draymond who um, they both talked about how vocal Draymond is with him and like kind of almost trying to get him up to speed with the game and the way the Warriors play. But there was a few times late in that game where Wiggins just had these like Herculean efforts on the glass a couple times in the defensive glass, but it was much more about what we talked about a few days ago. It was much more about like positioning, boxing out, and then ensuring and clearing a path so that a warrior could get the ball. There was a nice play late in the fourth quarter where he relocated off the ball to uh, for a catch and shoot three. There was a couple plays in overtimes uh, in overtime where like on the same possession, because the Warriors are moving the ball around, he made a really nice decision on like the drive and then a kick 
um, again, twice in the same possession. For me now, it is to the point where it is much more just like much more than just the numbers, which by the way, the numbers look pretty good. This is a guy that is about 18 points a game on an effective field goal percentage of 56.6. The free throw shooting is still weird. Like it doesn't really make sense when you consider the fact that his his shooting splits right now are 49, 42, 68. And if you go by the first number being two point percentage, which I know you prefer, he's shooting 53% from two, 42 percent from deep but then randomly 68 percent from the free throw line doesn't make sense but anyway i do think when you look at like an efficient 18 points per game with very very solid defense on an elite defensive team and playing the second most minutes behind only curry for the second best team in the league like i do think if you kind of just take that player and you don't assign him a name you don't know who it is i think people like ourselves and it sounds like like you who are still much more doubting of him would be a lot more open to considering that guy as an all-star i have no problem going ingram above him like i said i do believe on balance brandon ingram is a better basketball player but i do think wiggins based on the way this first half of the season has gone the way he and the warriors have played and again more so because of how depleted the west is i i would have given him the edge but i'm fine with ingram there like it, for me it was it was a toss up you you yeah, sound I mean, like you didn't even have Wiggins as like the next guy in for a front court. Not even close. Not I, even I've close. Given, no, he's not. He's not. He's not in, in that conversation. Not, he's not even I've given close. I've given Wiggins a lot of praise on this podcast. He's had a really good season. He's been a near perfect role player for the Warriors, but he's been a role player for them, and that's just a fundamentally different responsibility than the one guys like Ingram carry. And I think that's like a really important distinction. If we're talking about all-stars, like the best players in the NBA, yeah. I would sorry, also say, isn't that like, he's, I would also say the, the Pelicans are 11 games under 500. And as much as you, as you talked about Brandon Ingram, keeping them afloat, which okay, I agree. How many games under 500 would they be? If you flipped Brandon Ingram and Andrew Wiggins, honestly, I don't think it would be that much different. Well, would they be 13 games under 500? Sure, would but that's what I'm saying. Either way, it's still, they're still better. Like, for as much as we talk about Ingram keeping them afloat, and I agree, they've been better with him in the lineup for sure, they're afloat because the Western Conference bottom half is an absolute dumpster fire. Like, this is still a team on pace for like 50 losses. Okay, so I'm saying if you flipped Wiggins and Ingram, like, would, would the Warriors be worse? And then, like, would the Pelicans be worse? Because I think the I think Warriors it, would not be worse, and I think the Pelicans absolutely would. I think Andrew Wiggins has become a, like, much better defender than Brandon Ingram. Sure. Right, so that, that like, goes into it, too. Like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, but, like, he's also... Like, what would Andrew Wiggins' defense look like in the Pelicans' system compared to in the Warriors' system? Fair question. We don't know. We don't know. What I know is that Brandon Ingram's better than Andrew Wiggins. And for that reason, I think he deserves to be an all-star ahead of him. And yeah, I'm, I I won't even get into like the list of players that I would have had ahead of Wiggins if if Ingram wasn't the guy. But I just don't think that he, he, he was never, he never approached that conversation really to me. And that's fine. Like he's still been really good. He's still been super effective in his role for the Warriors. He just isn't that guy to me. And that's. I think I, I think it's wild that he's not close to being he's not even in the conversation for being the sixth best Western Conference front court player in a year where we're saying like all those other guys because of it again, not not in the conversation for actually being a top six West Front Court player, but just based on this season and the guys available. Now I will say this. If the news for Paul George was that he's expected back any day as opposed to out a minimum of another three weeks, I would have just given it to Paul George because He's missed 20 games. He's played 26 of 46, but 
if I knew he was coming back and going to like get more games in, I would have just said like, please take this spot because I'd rather give it to a guy that talent wise, performance wise, like very clearly deserves it rather than have to argue about Brandon Ingram and Andrew Wiggins. But the fact that he's going to miss another minimum three weeks to me is like, it's just, you can't put him in because by the time that three weeks is up, I went through it. Like then you're looking at a guy who's probably played 26 out of 54 games. And then if you stretch that to the actual all-star weekend and he hasn't come back, you're looking at a guy that's played like 26 out of 57 to 60. Like you just can't do it. But I do wish obviously for the fact that, you know, he deserves to be playing. He's a great player. The Clippers um, deserve some help based on the way they've been fighting. But even just selfishly, I wish Paul George was coming back. So this would have been an easier exercise and we wouldn't have had to have this Andrew Wiggins bantering uh, Brandon Ingram debate. Well, we could have avoided this bantering debate if you just hadn't put Andrew Wiggins on your all-star team. But I don't have any problem Listen, giving I'm not... a shout out to Ingram, man. I, th- I think he, he's been good this season and I'm happy to give him this spot on my total my totally fictional ballot. So I didn't envision myself two weeks ago stumping for Andrew Wiggins on, on this episode, but here we are. And like I said, I, I, and you know, I'm a, a Brandon Ingram guy. Like I, I've been higher on him in general than, than you have. Um, but Pelicans are going to lose like 50 plus games. All right. So Ingram does get the spot because again, in the, in the interest of fairness, that's how we do it. We go back and forth. Mm-hmm. So, Oh wait, we still got to do wild cards. Yeah. I mean, look, one of mine is Luca. Like I, I just, had him there as opposed to as like one of the first guard reserves because of basically time missed. And also the fact that his early part of the season when he was playing was super disappointing on both ends of the floor. But you have him in there. I have him in there as a wild card. He's come on strong lately. uh, And I think to your point, like he's going to continue improving. And like, by the time the all-star game actually rolls around, I think like, I mean, his numbers are obviously crazy and, just his last couple weeks of games um, and you know, the, the way that his uh, his return to the lineup has coincided with the Mavs rise up the Western conference standings. I think he definitely deserves one of those last spots. And then my other wild card was Booker who I assume okay. you had in there as well. Yes. That's what I was to say. So I had Mitchell as a wild card to replace your Luke because I had Luca in the actual spot. So that's the only difference there. And then yeah, we both had Booker. I think that is a, an easy pick. Um, I, I think the closest, uh, next guard if there had been one in probably DeJounte Murray who's having a really really awesome maybe awesome is a strong word but a really really good season for a mediocre Spurs team you know he's averaging about 18 9 and 8 the efficiency hasn't been there but there's not a lot of help in San Antonio I don't think you can ask for much more from him and he's also been really solid defensively as usual Shea Gilgis Alexander just hasn't had the efficiency he had last year like he's still putting up numbers everyone knows how high I am on him and his upside but to like to make to get an all star nod from me or in general forget from me on a team that bad like you have to be really really extraordinary and I think he was a lot closer to it last year than he was this year when his efficiency has fallen off so I'd give it to Dejounte as like the first snub over SGA and even Dejounte I don't think for as good as he's been he hasn't been as good as a guy like Devin Booker and the team obviously has been nowhere near as good so Booker gets our last spot Dejounte uh, sorry maybe next year or not. All right, so before we take the break after like a 55-minute first segment, we'll be much quicker with our East team. Our 2022 Pound the Rock Western Conference All-Stars, Steph Curry, Ja Morant, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Rudy Gobert, Luka Doncic, Chris Paul, Draymond Green, Carl Anthony Towns, Brandon Ingram, Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell. Sounds good to me. And again, the fact that 
DeJounte Murray and Andrew Wiggins sound like the two guys next in the list based on, you know, the way we do things, I think goes to show you that this was not an ordinary year in the Western Conference. And the balance of power has started to swing, not just on the team level, but also on the individual level. Yeah, although I don't want to shortchange what Murray has done. I actually think he's been pretty exceptional. It's really just like the scoring efficiency that is kind of holding him back right now, like 50% true shooting, basically. And the fact that he doesn't get to the free throw line a whole ton and the bulk of his jumpers come from mid-range is sort of what pulls that efficiency down. But I think, you know, obviously he's a tremendous defender, but as an overall offensive player, I think he's rounded out his game quite nicely. And if you'll remember, actually, before the season started, I uh, predicted an all-star level type of breakout for him. So I've been really happy to see that come to fruition. And yeah, it's a pretty anonymous, pretty unremarkable Spurs team. He's like the one reason really to watch that team on a nightly basis. But I would tune into the Spurs for that reason, because he's a really fun player to watch. He's super fast in the open floor. He's pretty crafty with the ball. And uh, he defends like an absolute madman. So shouts to him like, yeah, he didn't make my team at the end of the day, but he was in contention. And I think uh, that's worthy of a shout out because um, he he was nowhere close last year. You know, he's made a pretty significant jump. And I think that's exciting long term for San Antonio. All right, let's take this damn break and come back and talk Eastern Conference. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, we've already explained why Joel Embiid is going to be one of the three East frontcourt starters. Get us started with the second guy. I think the three East frontcourt starters should be a very easy uh, exercise, but give us the second guy. And then I think I can quickly give us the third guy. Uh, it's Giannis. I think because we, we've already spent so much time uh, on the West All-Stars, we should just try and rip through this as fast as we can. Um, yeah. We've talked a ton about Giannis the last couple of weeks, so I feel like uh, the explanation is clear enough. We don't need to go into too much detail about why Giannis Antetokounmpo is an All-Star starter. Yep. And then I'll give the last East uh, starting frontcourt spot to Kevin Durant. I think also pretty self-explanatory. The one thing I'll say, obviously, we're going to monitor uh, this knee injury. They gave him a four to six week timeline that seems like it would take him out of the all-star uh, game. And if it doesn't, like if he's healthy by then, I don't know how comfortable the Nets would be him, you know, say like his second bout of action after coming back being the all-star game. So I do have a feeling we, there will be an injury replacement down the line for this spot, but on merit and he's played more than enough. Kevin Durant should be one of the three East frontcourt starters. So that gives us the same three that the fans have right, right now, which is Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kevin Durant. Let's now go to the East guards, which I, I think is a much tougher exercise. Maybe not the starting two, but like guards in general the east is stacked i i had more trouble um picking you know four to six east guards than i had any other position in the league right this year so uh, let's get to that give me your first eastern conference starting guard yeah i mean to that point uh i actually i did this exercise for the first time when i went on uh will lose raptors podcast to discuss fred van vliet's candidacy 
And at that point in time, I didn't realize that DeMar DeRozan had been listed as a guard rather than a front court player. So yes. I actually had him as my first front court player off of the bench. And him being listed as a guard has really complicated this uh, because it is a super crowded field. But given that he is listed as a guard, he is my first starting guard in the Eastern Conference. Uh, he just, in terms of consistency, uh, availability, crunch time play, just, you know, obviously just like overall, like the defense has still been an issue, but like between his scoring and his playmaking and the way that he has led that upstart Bulls team to the number one seed in the East, I think uh, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah, no complaint from me. I mean, I, I, I talked a couple of weeks ago and wrote about why I think DeMar's a little more playoff proof this year as well, much more polished offensive player. Uh, I gave the other spot to Trey Young. The Hawks have been hella disappointing. I realized that. I just wrote about that. And I get that his defense is a, is a big part of why defensively they're bad. Like, he is a terrible defensive player. He is like an out-of-this-world, outrageously good offensive player and is the reason why the Hawks actually have, I believe, the second-best offense in the league right now. The guy's averaging 27 points and 9 assists on 58% true shooting. And that true shooting is actually pretty out-of-this-world given the burden on him. Um, in terms of 27 plus points, nine plus assists, uh, and that efficiency, you're looking at LeBron and James Harden as the only guys who have ever done that in the three-point era. He has the second highest usage rate in the league right now while also having the league's highest assist percentage. He's on track to become just the fourth player ever to post a usage rate of at least 35 and an assist percentage of at least 45% in the same season. The offensive burden on this guy is insane, and yet he continues to not just produce, but produce efficiently. The defense obviously leaves a lot to be desired, but there are very few guys on the planet that can do what he does offensively and also play any sense of passable defense. So I'm not going to get too down on him for that. Yeah, I mean, he I, I didn't have him there, but I agree with everything you said about his offense and he is everything for that Hawks second-ranked offense. I mean, he makes all of it go and... Maybe you can quibble with the extent to which he dominates the ball. And I guess I think that his teammates would. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, it seems to be causing some friction there. And I think you could use that maybe as a marker against him. But at the same time, if he's not handling the ball, then who is, you know? Certainly not somebody who's going to help maintain that second ranked offensive exactly. rating. So I get that. The defense to me has been so bad that I actually bumped him out of the starting lineup. But I guess in the spirit of this exercise, he is our pick because uh, because you were up and you gave me the Ingram spot. So I'll give you Trey Young as a starter. Uh, and I don't think it's I think he's been good enough offensively that I'm not going to grouse too much about it. But okay. since we're probably going to move on to our, our guard reserves anyway, yep. I will say that I had Fred Van Vliet as a starter. What I would ask you is, mm -hmm. you know, what do you think is more impressive? Is it the Raptors being a, a plus 4.1 net rating with Fred Van Vliet on the court, given the surrounding talent there, or is it the Hawks basically being a net neutral with Trey on court, giving their surrounding talent? Because obviously, yeah, for, as good for, as good as Trey has been offensively, and as good as the Hawks have been offensively, they have like barely outscored opponents with Trey on the floor because their defense has been so bad, and their defense has been so bad. You know, obviously not entirely because of him, but in large part because of him. If you're asking me, like, from that on-off perspective, yeah, I would agree with you. Like, the, the Van Vliet number and what the Raptors have been with him on the court has been more impressive, for sure. The thing I would say about Trey is, like, 
I'm hard on his defense. Like it, it needs to be better. He's not a good defensive player, but it can be better than this. You brought up the good point of him like dying on screens. It's very like he surrenders on screens. It's inexcusable. But I do still think that like I think there are levels of talent that are like on one end of the floor that are so transcendent that I do think it it doesn't make it so that you should you're like immune to criticism on the other end. Don't get me wrong. But it does make it to me where like if there is kind of a tight debate between a couple players or like you can almost settle with like, okay, like which if you take both these players and you can just like take one of them or you like one of their skills, what would it be? And for me, you know how much I love Fred Van Vliet, not just because we're sitting here in Toronto, but because this guy is like, he is an unbelievable basketball player. I was saying he deserved max money a couple years ago. He's now got it. Like he is everything and more for the Raptors. He's their MVP. I think he deserves to be an all-star. But if you were asking me between like him and Trey Young, like I would take Trey's transcendent offensive talent over anything between those two guys. And so I think while it's been, you know, credit to Fred Van Vliet for the fact he is even in a conversation where we're debating between him and Trey Young this year right now, but I would still take Trey Young over Fred Van Vliet and I would just take that transcendent offensive talent, which has been on display this year. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. You can say that you would take that transcendent talent, but if we're talking about just like overall impact on winning, I'm not sure that, I mean, we can, we can I guess, do the same totally you know, speculative exercise about like what would happen if those two guys traded places. I don't know, actually, this, this is a, a challenging one, but like if they swap places, would, I think, I think the Raptors, would the, would Raptor, be would the Raptors be better? I, I think like, they, would the I think Hawks would be, be worse? I think the, I think the Raptors would be better. That's interesting because the Raptors I love, are, again, like I, this is not an anti-Fred thing. This is I, yeah. Trey Young's. <laughs> well, the, the Trey, Raptors are 11th in the league in offense. I know. And uh, a huge part of that is driven by Van Vliet, who, by the way, has been a considerably better three-point shooter than Trey Young this season. And obviously there's yep. way more that, that Trey does in the mid-range. He's a much better yes. passer. But but Fred Van Vliet is shooting 40% on 10 threes a game. Uh, he's shooting 49% on catch-and-shoot threes. Uh, he's right around 22 points, seven assists, uh, super low turnover player. He's also 66% and, within three feet of the rim this year. Like his, I, I tweeted about this the other night. And it Him... Yeah struggling to finish at his size the way he has in his NBA career has made him such a crafty player around the rim. He was 53% through his first five years within three feet. He's up to 66% this year. Yeah. And then you're talking about him being all defense caliber at the other end of the floor, despite carrying a massive offensive load. So if you want to say, well, no one could really carry the load that Trey is carrying and still be a positive defensive player. Well, I'm saying Fred Van Vliet has been exactly that. And I don't come Look, on. Another, he hasn't. He doesn't carry the exact offensive load Trey Young does. And I didn't say no one could do. I said it's a very select handful of players. Like right. Trey. Trey's offensive burden is a lot different than than Fred's. Trey is much more on that kind of like Harden Doncic level of offensive burden. That again, Fred has been awesome. And yes, his he is their engine on the offensive end. The burden on him, the minutes are there. But like, it is not the same offensive burden that Trey Young carries. Well, it's not the same on-ball burden, but part of that is the fact that Trey dominates the ball and then doesn't really move without it, whereas Fred is actually a really good off-ball player who can be super effective. Like, once he gives up the ball, he doesn't stop moving. Like, he relocates exceptionally well, and now as the Raptors have sort of started shifting more of their on-ball duties to Pascal Siakam, I mean, Fred has just taken off as an off-ball player, and... 
you know, the other thing I'll say is his numbers are inflated by how many minutes he's playing. Like he's leading the league in minutes per game at 38.1. But on the other hand, he's playing an insane amount of minutes because the Raptors are ridiculously over-reliant on him. So I actually consider that a point in favor of his candidacy, uh, even though he's starting to wear down under the weight of that insane workload. Like, he he is playing that number of minutes for them because he has to. That's something I completely agree with. Like I, there are times where you can say okay, a guy's numbers are inflated because of minutes, and like if you want to look at the raw numbers, sure, Fred's numbers might be inflated because of those minutes. But that's one thing when I'm when I'm like debating between guys for All Star candidacy, All NBA, whatever, a guy playing more minutes, like that many more minutes, to me is a check for them, not an X against them because it means their numbers are inflated. You know, and it goes back not even just to the Wiggins thing, but even uh, when we were talking like Chris Paul, Devin Booker, like all those things. To me, if you're playing that many more minutes and you're it's not you're doing that and being a detriment to your team, you're not doing that for a really shitty team that just has to give minutes away. Like that should be a check for you, not an X against you. Yeah. So I look, I I, I don't hate putting Trey there. Like I said, when when I did this exercise the first time I had Damar coming off the bench and I actually had both Trey and Fred starting. So I'm fine with it. Um I would just say, uh, you know, if it comes down to choosing, I know only one of those players has actively sabotaged his team at one of the floor this season. So I would have gone with Fred, but I'm fine having him as like the first guard coming off the bench. The one last thing I'll say with Trey when we're talking about his impact on the offensive end this year, with him on the court, the Hawks score like one of the 10 most efficient teams of all time. With him off the court, they score two points per 100 possessions worse than the 30th ranked Pistons this year. So worst offensive team in the league this year. Yeah. Now do defense ever. This is this has become now a Hooper defense. versus up. No, I'm kidding. Do uh, defense. He is a uh, just phenomenal offensive talent. Okay, uh, so wait. So we've got DeRozan, uh, Trey, and Van Vliet. So I will now pick the second and final uh, reserve spot for the guards. Again, there could be two more in the wild cards. I'm going to give it to James Harden. I think there are a lot uh, of guys. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, man. Uh yeah. Okay. I mean, go make your case. I'll just say that you putting Harden there now is going to lead to the exclusion of a guard that I had. Uh, well, on my guess what? Well, fun. This is the NBA All Star selection process. All right. Good players are going to get left out, and this would be much easier if either we were talking completely positionless, or to your point earlier, if Demar Derozan was more accurately listed as a front court player, mm-hmm. then we would be able to get. Uh, a more deserving player in there as a guard. And it would also make the front court selection easier because there might be a guy in the front court that makes it that doesn't quite deserve it over one of these snubbed guards. I digress. Yeah. I would say James two Harden. two front court players are, are now going to wind up making it over over more deserving guards. That's fine. So uh, do, do you believe that James Harden isn't an all-star at all this year or you just think he shouldn't get one of the... I didn't have him on my Eastern Conference all-star team. Get, come on, Wolf on, get out of here, man. You're telling me Sorry. you don't think James Harden has been even a top six guard in the Eastern Conference this year? Nope. What is, have you been hanging out with Rob Lowe, who apparently gives NBA players quaaludes? Uh, I don't know if you saw that. Is that what, what is going, you, did you not see this? Uh, Rob Lowe said on uh, no. Jimmy Kimmel this week that because he's a huge Lakers fan, and he actually used to travel with Jack Nicholson and the Showtime Lakers. They used to travel on the road with the Lakers, like on the team plane, on the bus. Rob Lowe says he got barred from doing that and from staying at the team hotel by Pat Riley because he once gave a Lakers player a quaalude 
And that Lakers player proceeded to go on in an 0 for 32 shooting slump immediately in the days following that Quaalude experience. And anyway, so you're saying I'm the one who got the Quaalude or James Harden's the one who got the Quaalude? I'm saying you're the one who season. got, come on, man. It's, dude, listen, James Harden has not been at his best. I will give you that. He has not been as efficient as he normally is. James Harden is still averaging roughly 23 points and a league leading 10 assists. And when you watch him on the court and he has come on stronger lately, when you, like, you cannot tell me that James Harden is not one of the four to six best guards in the Eastern Conference. And again, I'll give you that this, this year, the East is stacked from a guard perspective. There are a lot of deserving guys in this conversation. Harden, you know, I didn't put it as a starter. We're saying he's our fourth guard in the East. You're saying he hasn't even made your team at all. That's correct. All right. Well, let's... Uh, Okay, so I just rounded out our four guards, and I, you know, Harden and and Trey are in there, but uh, DeRozan and uh, and Van Vliet are in there as well. So let's just, I mean, we got to go back to front court first before we get to wild cards. So let's do the front court. We'll come back to wild cards and we'll find out who you had ahead of Harden. But let let's get to the East front court now. We need three reserves after having uh, Embiid, Giannis, and KD as our starters. You're up. Mm-hmm. Who's your first East front court reserve? Yeah, this man, this this Eastern Conference front court crop is it's it's, it's not tough. great. But, yeah. but uh, one obvious one is Jimmy Butler. I mean, he's yes. he's in there easily. He's only played twenty seven games, which is actually I think the same number that AD has played and one more than Paul George has played. Yeah. So, um, but but he's been much better, I think, than both of those guys when he's been healthy. He, he's also, also is healthy currently. Yeah, right. He's been spectacular uh, and. I just think it's it's continually amazing to me how, despite the dissolution of his jump shot, he just still finds ways to get better and better. And, you know, between his off-ball cutting, like his playmaking, his defense obviously on and off the ball, uh, the force that he plays with out of the post, like the, the way that he seals guys off of switches, like it's just, he's just an all around ball player. Like, I I don't know how else to put it. Like he, apart from the jump shooting, which it's still weird to me the way that it it has completely dissolved, but he still has so many different ways to score, whether it's off of cuts or just sort of bullying his way to the rim, or even like getting into the short mid range and getting off those push shots that he's actually become super effective at hitting, uh, getting to the free throw line a ton. Uh, It's, I mean, he's wonderful. So I think no doubter as the first front court player reserve for the East. It's got to be him. Okay. My second uh, East front court reserve player is DeMontis Sabonis from your Indiana Pacers, Joe Wolfon. I think that uh, for as bad as the Pacers have been, I don't think any of that really falls on the shoulders of Sabonis, who has been absolutely lights out this is a guy that's made the all-star team i think two years in a row this would be the third and Mm -hmm. and yet i think he's actually playing the best ball of his career right now it's just maybe people haven't paid attention because the pacers have been that bad and have lost so many close games although they did just have one of the most ridiculous uh back-to-backs of the season where they win in la and then again come back as 15 and a half point underdogs the next night without sabonis turner lavert and uh, and brogdon and, and win at oracle but anyway Sabonis has been awesome uh, in terms of numbers. You're looking at uh, 19 points, 12 rebounds, five assists, and a steal on 61% effective field goal percentage. Not even just true shooting percentage. Strictly his shots from the field. He's been 
just absolutely lights out. I can't say enough about him. And also I referenced this on an earlier show, maybe like last month, but you know that whole like the players of the game exercise, fun exercise I do. He is uh, top 16 right now on that list for me in terms of guys, like the amount of times that he's been the best player in an NBA game this year. I counted 13 times, which actually puts them uh, the same number as Trey Young, Devin Booker, Carl Anthony Towns, John Morant, and Rudy Gobert. So Sabonis, especially when we're talking about the East front court crop not being that good. Got to have this guy in there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think he's been awesome. He's been super consistent. Yeah. Uh, I think he's only missed a couple of games. And I think his defense has actually been a little bit better this season as well. Um, kind of similar to Towns, but the Pacers have him now hedging ball screens a lot of the time. And I think, you know, I, I was mentioning Towns, how like he's doing it. He's been okay, but uh, like probably one of the worst guys in the league at doing that consistently. I guess Sabonis has actually been pretty good at it. Uh, and, and the most important thing there is like, that's like you're supposed to hedge and recover, right? And Sabonis actually does a really good job with the recovery. Like he's getting back into the play and he's still rebounding the ball despite coming up all the way to the level of the screen uh, in pick and roll. So I've been pretty impressed with him at that end of the floor, even though that's clearly still not his strong suit. I think it's a smarter use of him because he's not a great rim protector. And he's handled the assignment with aplomb. And then, you know, offensively, I actually think like the stuff that we talked about early in the season about him getting like phased out of the offense a little bit uh, has changed in the last few weeks. Like part of that is by necessity because so many guys have been out of the lineup for the Pacers, but uh, he's really been in the thick of everything. And I think he's just been outstanding uh, as a post scorer, obviously as a, you know, an elbow hub and a playmaker. He, um, you know, people are going to look at the Pacers record. They've been super disappointing and say, no way do they deserve an all-star. But that just ignores so much context, right? Like they've been yep. completely decimated by injuries and by COVID. And I don't think that that is in any way reflective of the way Sabonis has played. And I don't yep. think it should be a deterrent to him making the all-star team. Uh, yep. Now, again, if positions weren't a factor, maybe... You could make that argument, but if we're just talking about the front court crop, I think he a hundred percent deserves it and uh, that the Pacers record should not in any way be held against him. Okay. So get, finish off our East front court reserves. <sighs> Again, it's like, I didn't feel great um, about any of the options, but uh, I did wind up picking Tatum. I'd yeah, have I mean, Siakam actually over Tatum to be hundred percent honest with you. And, I, and okay. I'll let you fine. make your case for Tatum. Yeah. Yeah, look, I I know it's been a disappointing season for him and the Celtics. The shooting has been bad, but his highs are still so high, right? Like his highs are higher than Siakam's highs. And I know that's not the only way that we should be judging this, but I just think ultimately he is the better player. I, I don't think, like Siakam's become a better passer than him for sure, but I still have just a lot more faith in Tatum as a scorer and a guy who like, I don't want either of those guys necessarily to be like the primary engine of my offense. But if I had to choose, I think I would still choose Tatum as that guy just because of the shot creation, the pull-up shooting. And I think, you know, look, he's not as limited a playmaker as people make him out to be. He's just a bit overextended in a lead playmaker role, but that doesn't mean he isn't a good passer. I think his assist totals this season would look a lot gaudier if guys around him could actually knock down shots. But the Celtics are one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league. And yes, like Tatum struggles have contributed to that. But I, I still think he's been, you know, more or less at all-star level. He's played in almost every game. His defense has really picked up after a bit of a slow start. And the Celtics are still really good with him on the floor. So 
uh, it was close for sure between him and Pascal, but I, I gave the nod to Tatum and I, I would feel fine going the other way as well. But uh, I just think, you know, for me, it just came down to like uh, Siakam missed a lot of time. And then honestly, the first two, three weeks after he came back, he was not especially good. And that's that's kind of how I made the decision. Yeah, I, listen, if, if someone had asked me two days ago if I thought Pascal Siakam was an all-star this year, I'd say no because of, you know, the game's missed and all that. And, like, I didn't even consider it, to be honest. Not because he isn't playing exceptionally well, because I just thought he had missed so much time, the East is better this year, blah, blah, blah. And then when I sat down to do this exercise for the purpose of this podcast, and I realized how barren the East front court is, and I got to the end and I was like, holy shit. Siakam actually might make his second despite missing all that time. He might actually make like I think he is actually deserving of this based on them needing six front court players. It came down to Siakam and Tatum for me. And I agree with what you were saying about like, you know, who do you trust more to run the out like all that stuff. But if you're just going by 2021, 2022 performance, I think the only ways Tatum has been better is in the points per game department and the games played department because Siakam missed all that time. But if you're talking about just this year, I think Siakam has been the better offensive player, regardless of um, upside or talent. He is obviously the better playmaker, even efficiency wise with their individual scoring. Siakam has been better. He's, he's shot the ball better this year, which again, you could say small sample size. We know Tatum's better shooter, but we can only make all-star selections based on what's happening this year. And I think from that perspective, Siakam has been better. I think he's gotten a lot closer to his uh, peak defensive form I don't think he was that when the season started. The Raptors obviously should be better than they actually are defensively, but I think Siakam's starting to round into form. And I think if that continues, you know, towards the all-star game, I just think if we're taking everything um, on balance, I think Siakam has been the better player on both ends this year. And yeah, the, the Celtics are still a solid team when Tatum's on the floor, but if you look at their like year as a whole, some of the dysfunction there, and then you look at the Raptors since Siakam's kind of got back to being who he is, I, I just think that Siakam's actually checking all the boxes over Tatum this year, except for, again, the game's play department. I'm leaning Siakam. And again, I didn't think I'd be even having a conversation about Siakam in the All-Star picture two days ago. You look at the East front court, and I think he has been that sixth guy. Yeah, but I mean, the game's played thing isn't a small thing. It's a 15-game difference, I, right? I mean, like, that's that's significant. And like, maybe... Uh, if Siakam keeps this up for the next three weeks, I think he'll be hard to keep off the team. But just doing it now, uh, I feel like, you know, he missed too much time and struggled a little bit too much in the first couple of weeks after coming back for me to give him that nod. But uh, yeah, it's close. I, I don't have an issue with putting him there. But since it was my pick, sorry to say, Jason Tatum is our final Eastern Conference front court reserve. All right. So that leaves us with two wild card spots. So far, we've got. Trey Young, DeMar DeRozan, James Harden, Fred Van Vliet, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Kevin Durant, Jimmy Butler, DeMontis Sabonis, and Jason Tatum. Two wild card spots left. I guess this one's to me, right? Because you picked yeah. Tatum. All right. I'm going to give it to Zach Levine. I think that in the very flashy way, I guess DeMar DeRozan has gone about doing what he does. And, and maybe it's some of the surprise of the way DeMar's done it. And him, it's being his first year in Chicago and the Bulls being this great team. I think a lot of people have, myself included, flocked to what DeMar's done. I, he deserves all the praise in the world. You know, I, I mentioned him as a potential like fifth place MVP candidate. I think DeMar deserves all that praise. I also think that Zach Levine's performance this year has kind of gotten lost in that. I think the guy has still been 
absolutely unreal. You're still talking about a guy that is roughly 25 points, five rebounds, four dimes on 61% true shooting for the team with the best record in the conference right now. So I actually think this is even as stacked as the East guards are, however it ends up falling, whether it's as a reserve, whether it's as a wild card, I actually think it is still a no-brainer to have Levine in there in some fashion because he's having a tremendous year. It's just that the, the attention towards it is a little dimmed because of what DeRozan's doing. I think they're both all-stars. Yeah, I had Levine in there, uh, 54% on twos, 41% on threes. Like you mentioned, 61% true shooting on 30% usage. I mean, just like that combination of volume and efficiency is absolutely wild. And for whatever other nits you want to pick in Zach Levine's game, and there are nits to pick, he is still a kind of frustratingly limited playmaker, but obviously DeRozan being there means that he doesn't have to do the lead playmaker thing, which I think has benefited him greatly. I even think defensively, like obviously that's, he's still probably a slight negative defensively, but I think he's been much better this season and the Bulls defensive rating as a whole, while, you know, not attributable to him is still reflective of the fact that he is competing at that end. So I think, yeah, no doubt all-star and, um, that takes out one of our wildcard spots, which means now I have to choose the between spot. I have to choose between Drew Holiday and Darius Garland, which is a choice you have forced me into by shoehorning James Harden, an unworthy right. James Harden. Onto this Let's be honest team. here. Drew Holiday is a, a fine player, but if you're telling me you had Drew Holiday in your all-star team over James Harden, I'm saying yep. that's getting a little too cute. You can say that, and yet... Uh, I thought you were going to say, well, I guess I'm cute. <laughs> I'm so cute that I put Drew Holiday on my Eastern Conference All-Star team and left James Harden off because I just think, man, Harden's just been too inconsistent. The Nets have been worse with him on the court. In another circumstance, I, you might say, oh, well, like, don't hold that against him because the Nets stagger his and KD's minutes. So if they're like better with KD on the court without him, then you shouldn't hold that against Harden. But they haven't even been good with Harden on the court. They're like plus two with Harden on the court. And they're not even that good when Harden's on the court with KD. So I just, like, he has committed a ton of turnovers. He's really struggled to finish at the rim. He's not shooting it particularly well from three. His defense has been quite poor. So, like, compare him to Garland, for instance. And like, I've talked a bit about like the Nets offensive environment, like the, their lack of spacing, but look at the spacing on the Cavs, man. I had Garland and Harden on my team. <laughs> so it's just Drew Holiday that you take issue with? Correct. And again, it's, I don't really take issue with Drew Holiday being a great player, maybe being in the conversation. I take issue with Drew Holiday getting an all-star spot over James Harden this year, because I think even James Harden in a down year is still a much better mm. overall player than Drew Holiday. You know what the Bucks net rating is with Drew Holiday on the floor and Giannis Antetokounmpo off the floor? I don't. It's probably good because Holiday's been great this year. Plus eight. That's okay? incredible. That's, that's, like that's what Drew good. on and Giannis off. Yeah. Drew has been like, awesome this year. Yeah, he has. He's been really, really good at both ends yeah. of the floor. So Yes, and if you uh, still ask me who would you rather have, 2021-22 James Harden or 2021-22 Drew Holiday, I would laugh and say there's no way you're asking me a question this easy. You can have this as much wild. confidence as you want this in your wrong wild. answer, but this is um, wild to me. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, look, if it came down to it, I would, I would pick, uh, I would take Garland over Holiday. So I guess Drew's getting left off here. But, but oh, okay, okay. So you are going with Garland over Holiday. Yeah, I am going with Garland oh, okay. over Holiday. But yeah. okay. uh, I, I 
don't feel great about Drew getting left off. And I honestly don't think that Harden's been that good this season. Like, I, I know he's still a fantastic player. And I know by season's end, he could make this look silly by just like going on an absolute heater and playing the MVP level basketball we've seen him play in the past. But for now, I just don't think that he has been good enough offensively to offset how poor I think he's been defensively. And I think that like a a lot of the Nets disappointments this season come down to just hardened disappointments and him not really being the player that they expect him to be and need him to be. And maybe that's just like, he's still feeling the lingering effects of that hamstring injury. He's also carrying like a pretty massive workload, playing a ton of minutes. Also, if you're talking about highs, like what you were saying with the Tatum Siakam thing, if you want to talk about like highs, like James Harden's highs are still very, even in a down year, he's the best player on the floor a lot of the nights, even, you know, in a down year, his highs are still that high. Drew Holiday, again, like I'm not taking anything away from him other than an all-star spot. Uh, (laughs) But we're talking about like different stratosphere there when it comes to those highs. Yeah, but like how often has Harden actually hit those highs Man, this season? That's what I'm pretty, saying. Like, Dude, pretty. this is what I'm saying. Pretty often. Like I get, I'm not disagreeing with you about how disappointing he's been, about how his, him playing that disappointing, um, in that disappointing fashion is a big part of the Nets disappointing. But if you go through and look at it, like he actually has had quite a few games this year, like where he has hit those highs. The problem is it hasn't been as much as usual for sure. And the lows have been a lot lower than, what his floor usually is. I will give you that. But he has hit those highs more often than people realize this year. Like he has still had some, some batshit crazy games. Yeah, I guess. I just, I, I don't know. The, the, the body of work on the whole has just been like pretty uninspiring to me. And I'm not even a hardened hater. Like, you know, I know like I'm, how much appreciation I've had for right? his craft in the past. I, I picked the Nets as my title favorite this year in large part because of my belief in the kind of, Uh, undeniable offense that him and Kevin Durant could create together, even if Kyrie Irving wasn't going to be there. And it just hasn't happened. And I think it hasn't happened in large part because Harden hasn't really been Harden. His finishing has been off. His floater has been off. His jump shot's been meh. Uh, It's, I I don't know, man. It's, uh, I just don't think it has combined to paint the picture of an all-star when we're talking about the deep field of guards that we're talking about. So that's where I stood, but I'll I'll pick Garland as my last reserve. Uh, I just think, like what he has continued to do as literally the only off the dribble playmaker on the Cavs right now. Like look at that roster and tell me who else is making plays for them off the bounce. It's crazy. And I've said this before, like I know they're, they're kind of being carried by their defense and uh, obviously he's not the reason that their defense is as good as it is, but that excellent defense would not matter if they didn't have Garland to make it work offensively. And there is, nobody else on that team that is remotely capable of keeping that offense afloat. Like he is carrying so much of that playmaking load and he is doing that exceptionally well. Like he has become such a good passer, such a pick, a good pick and roll orchestrator. And I mean, he's just like spoon feeding those guys like wide open looks, whether it's like making the skips to the corner or hitting Jared Allen on the roll. I I love what he's doing as an offensive initiator. I mean, the Cavs are fifth in the East with the best net rating in the conference, despite losing like their only two other guards basically uh, to season ending injuries. And since that's happened, I mean, obviously the Rubio one was still pretty recent, but like they've barely missed a beat and uh, they've got a, a plus nine net rating with Garland on the court. I mean, that is immense. 
So uh, I think he absolutely has to be here. And even to the point about the defense, like, yeah, he's not the reason that that defense is good. He's still a minus defender on the whole, just sort of because of his physical stature more than anything. But for the most part, like he's in the right spots at the right times. You know, he's not like compromising their defense with blown assignments or like botched rotations. He just tends to get overwhelmed sometimes at the point of attack uh, or on switches because he's not that strong. But like, that's fine, especially for like a lead guard. That's totally fine. I think he's been way better than Trey defensively, for instance. So yeah, on the whole, I think he has to be here. And as much as it pains me to leave Drew Holiday off, uh, I, I'm giving the nod here to Garland. Yeah. I also just, before we get out of here, I do want to point out um, just how, again, how stacked the East has been this year. Some of the players like we didn't even mention, Jalen Brown, Bradley Beal, uh, Jared Allen, LaMelo Ball, Miles Bridges, Tyler Hero, even Kyle Lowry, though the numbers haven't been there. Like, yeah. we didn't even mention Middleton. those. Mid, yeah, Chris Middleton. We didn't even mention all those guys. And like, okay, like Beal's a perfect example. Beal defensively has been god-awful. We know that. But he's averaging like 24 points and six assists for a, a Wizards team that's actually been good record-wise. Like, they've started the slide. They picked it back up again. I think they're over 500 as we speak. In a normal year, a guy averaging 24 and six on a winning team in the East is like, well, that guy's obviously an all-star. You look at the year like Jared Allen's having. You compare it again. I know we're going like to the lows of lows and shout out Jamal McGlure. I respect the hell out of the guy as a Toronto guy, tough guy. But like, like look at the year Jamal McGlure was an Eastern Conference All-Star way back in the day. You look at like what Jared Allen's doing for a really good Cavs team this year, not even in the conversation because of just how stacked the East is this year. And, you know, it's a great thing for the East. It also sucks for some of these players that they can't, they can't get looks there, but I did want to shout those guys out. This is literally our longest podcast ever, so we will get out of here. But I, So I really want to quickly run down everything. So in the West, Steph Curry, John Morant, Luka Doncic, Chris Paul, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green, Carl Anthony Towns, Brandon Ingram, Devin Booker, and Donovan Mitchell. And in the East, Trey Young, DeMar DeRozan, James Harden, Fred Van Vliet, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Kevin Durant, Jimmy Butler, DeMontis Sabonis, Jason Tatum, Zach Levine, and Darius Garland. Those are your Pound the Rock All-Stars. It's been fun, Wolfon. Uh, unless you have anything else to add as we approach 100 minutes here. Yeah, the only thing I would, I, I just had like a, like LaMelo, I guess, was like another, you know, tough yeah. cut. And I think For sure. it's like, it's tough not to have a Hornet on there because the Hornets have actually been pretty good. Uh, and lamello has been great, but I just, I don't feel like just because a team outperforms its expectations that they need to have an all-star. And also it's not like the Hornets have completely blown the doors off their projections the way that like the Grizzlies or the Cavs have. So I don't feel like they need to have a guy there. Uh, and I, I still think, you know, Lamello has been close to that level, but not quite on the level of the other guys we mentioned. Um, just a, like a few too many gambles on defense, his two point scoring, uh, on offense has actually been like really underwhelming. And um, I just think Charlotte's success is more the product of like uh, a collective effort with like a bunch of guys who are maybe a level or two below the, uh, the all-star threshold, like, like Bridges, Hayward, Rogier. Um, so while I think Lamella has been really good, he just missed the cut for me. Yeah. And, and I think not that I think this is a reason to leave him off, but he will have his time. And I think, you know, if he stays yes. healthy and all things, he, he will have plenty of all-star selections in his future. And I think eventually all-star starts too, because I think he'll be a popular enough player and a aesthetically pleasing enough player where fans will vote for him as well. So there's that. 
Um, okay, again, I mentioned it's the longest episode ever. Uh, we have two shout outs in the bank for next week already, but I did want to give this shout out. Th- again, this one's a personal one, which we do once in a while. This one goes out to Peter Blandisi, friend of mine. I wanted to sh- uh, shout him out because this isn't just like the usual friend shout out. He's been a Pound the Rock listener since day one and is one of those like friend listeners that is such an avid listener that he's like messaging me when the pod hasn't gone up at a certain time on a Tuesday or Friday. being like, where's the pod? I need it. He'll be like wanting to talk to me about things we debated about in the episode. He is so invested in it. So I got to give Peter a shout out. I do know for a fact he's also become quite the Wolf on fan over time. So I don't appreciate that, but... <laughs> but we'll give it to him. So anyway, Pete, thanks for supporting the show. Usual call out, even though I said we have two bank for next week, we're doing two a week. So we need more bank for the following weeks and in the future. So the usual thing, if you're a fan of pound the rock, hit us up on Twitter at Joey W at Joseph Cacharo, email Joe.wolfon at the score.com Joseph.cacharo at the score.com Instagram, Joe underscore, underscore, underscore cash. And uh, let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from. Tell us whatever the hell you want to tell us. We will guarantee you a shout out in a future show. Till one of those future episodes. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. 